Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my name is Dora Meredith and I'm the director of ODI Europe uh, based here in Brussels. Um, we've got the joy of our very first uh, hybrid event today. So uh, we're, we're both speaking to the camera where I know we've got many colleagues um, and a large audience watching and here in Brussels in the room. Um, so thank you. ODI Europe is an independent global affairs think tank and we undertake research, convening and advice to generate ideas that matter for uh, people and the planet. I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, come on in. We've still got people arriving. Um, I'm really happy to be hosting this event today. Um, Ten years ago, the Belt and Road Initiative was announced and became the defining narrative and brand of China's engagement with the world and particularly in its development cooperation with countries of the Global South. The third Belt and Road uh, Forum will be held later this month in Beijing, as I'm sure you're all aware. And against the, this context, we are um, delighted to be hosting this important event today to take the opportunity to evaluate on the past decade of the BRI, its achievements and challenges, particularly for global development cooperation um, and what that means for global um, development cooperation generally, um, and to reflect on the potential future. Um, we're going to kick off the session today with a presentation uh, by my dear colleague Yunnan Chen uh, before moving on to a fantastic panel discussion uh, and a wider debate with the audience, uh, which will also be taking place online. Uh, and afterwards, I hope that those who are in the room will join us outside for a small reception. Um, so let's kick off Yunnan. Yunnan is a uh, research fellow in ODI's Development and Public Finance Programme. Her work centres on the changing uh, development finance architecture and the role of global China. Yunnan, thank you very much and over to you. Thank you so much, Dora. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you so much uh, to those of you in Brussels and those of you joining virtually. Um, before I jump into talking about the BRI, I wanted to give a very quick introduction to some of ODI's work in this area for those of you who may be less familiar with us. ODI has been a leading voice uh, on China's engagement in the global south. We bring together diverse expertise in trade, finance, investment, climate, as well as geopolitical risk. And our work looks at the impacts and the implications of China's economic and geopolitical influence for the rest of the world, and particularly for lower and middle income countries of the global south. So our research, uh, which I can't show all of it to you today, but spans very pioneering work on China's outward development cooperation, outward investment, particularly in Africa, its multilateral and bilateral development finance and debt issues, and also the geopolitical risks of China's rise. And I also want to highlight here that we're having an event on, on critical minerals as well next week, which I encourage you to look up. And as well as research, we also engage in convening events and also uh, working directly with policymakers in shaping their understanding of China's activities across different regions of the world. And of course, within that, the Belt and Road Initiative has been a major feature and a constant running thread in ODI's work on China. So under the Global China 2049 project, which is led by our colleague Rebecca Nadin, we've produced 
several major reports looking at the social risks of the Belt and Road Initiative in partner countries, looking at case studies in Central and Southeast Asia, as well as a series of economic pulse reports that traced the impacts of COVID on VRI projects and their financing. We've also engaged in emerging work looking at modalities of, of China's lending practices via the VRI. So before we get to the panel, um, I want to get everyone onto the same page to give you a, a very quick potted introduction to what we call the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which encompasses many things. It's a very amorphous uh, concept and it's very, very difficult to pin down, but it's also important to situate it as the latest in a series of uh, sort of grand strategies in China's internationalization and in its own sort of domestic economic transformation. This really started in the 1990s with the going out policy that, that encouraged Chinese state-owned enterprises to go out, to seek resources, to build new markets. Over time in the 2000s, this evolved into the Into the West policy that tried to shift economic weight away from the coastal regions to try and develop the hinterland. And eventually this culminated in 2013 in what was previously called in English, One Belt, One Road, which was this idea of using trade and connectivity via Eurasia and Central Asia to then develop China's hinterland provinces and eventually this grew to encompass the Maritime Silk Road in Southeast Asia to East Africa and basically beyond. Uh, so it's very hard to sort of see a region of the world that hasn't been folded into the Belt and Road Initiative in some way. And this has served uh, you know, strategic and diplomatic purposes for China in presenting itself as a provider of global public goods to the world in securing particular trade routes uh, and, and its strategic access to natural resources. But it's also, you can also view it as a, as a spillover of its own domestic economic transition, where particularly we see this emergence of global China after the global financial crisis, where you have this domestic uh, problem of overcapacity and an overheated economy, saturated infrastructure markets. And so the Belt and Road Initiative is the culmination of, of uh, many, many trends that sought to export this surplus of capacity and export this surplus of, of capital as well overseas. So in this period, we see uh, major capital injections into China's policy banks and financial institutions, which all serve then to support companies to go out and seek new markets and, uh, and, and build infrastructure. And the BRI is also the export of a, of a narrative, of a development narrative, the idea that infrastructure trade and connectivity it can be a form uh, or a foundation for economic growth and economic transformation. And happily in this period, the outward flow of Chinese capital coincided with the demand for infrastructure finance that, uh, that, that came from countries in the global south who you know, really didn't have that many alternatives. So this is a period where the MDBs had largely retreated from infrastructure finance. After the global financial crisis, traditional donors were a lot more risk averse to financing these kinds of projects at scale. And so, you know, China served uh, a, a gap. And the focus of, of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, as, as these photos sort of illustrate, they're very much in this kind of hard economic infrastructure that we see at home. 
These are all areas of China's own industrial dominance, railways, hard infrastructure, hydropower dams. Um, and a lot of this finance has come via lending uh, debt finance from China's policy banks and uh, uh, also commercial banks um, to a smaller degree. But when we look at the pattern over time of official lending, uh, the, the diagram shows from the Boston University database, over time up to 2011, the flows of uh, lending from, from CDB and Exit Bank. But you can see over the period of the BRI, a clear boom and, and bust in overseas finance. And this predates COVID. COVID perhaps is, is a nail in the coffin uh, but it happens at the tail of an already dramatic slowdown. And we've also seen that the BRI has had a bit of a lower profile in recent years. There's, there's fewer mentions of it in official speeches, although this year will be the first high-level forum taking place since 2019. Um, but also in 2021, we saw the announcement of a new global development initiative from Xi Jinping, uh, and then following that, the Global Security Initiative and the Global Civilization Initiative. So there's clearly a diversification of platforms or a desire to diversify the platforms by which China is engaging with the Global South. Um, and it's also you know, no surprise to any of you to say that the BRI has become extremely controversial in recent years, particularly after 2017, where we uh, following this, the, the debt trap diplomacy narrative that becomes endemic in discussion around the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think whilst the, the risks of asset seizure that this debt trap narrative uh, portrayed, I think that is overblown. That said, it's also true that BRI lending and debt has contributed to, to debt burdens in many uh, lower income countries. So to uh, understand some of the institutional drivers behind these trends. I'm taking the opportunity today to also present a preview and a few highlights from some upcoming work that will be published by ODI in the coming month. Uh, it's a paper from myself and my co-author Zoe Zongyuan Liu, uh, which focuses on the role of Sinoshore, um, which is the an export credit agency that has been the main provider of insurance and de-risking finance for exporters, contractors, and creditors along the Belt and Road Initiative. It has a slightly lower profile, but along with CDB, China Development Bank, and China Exim Bank, it is one of the holy trinity of China's policy finance institutions that has undergirded the outward flow of finance via the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as overseas investment. And since its creation in the last 20 years, it has expanded dramatically in scale. We also see a shift, right? In the early years, it was very much a vanilla uh, trade finance agency supporting the import-export of goods. And to, to this day, that remains its primary purpose. However, over the period of the BRI years, we also see a growing shift towards supporting the export of China's capital as well going overseas. And increasingly in recent years, it seems to be playing more of an economic stabilization role. So the first contribution of the paper is to throw some light on this relatively understudied institution and to, to highlight Sinochon's catalytic role 
uh, in, in the overseas finance of the Belgian Road Initiative. Um, so on the right, you'll see here from, this is from Sinoshaw's annual reports, by the way, that its overall portfolio, it's the value of its international activities has basically nearly doubled in the last decade. And overwhelmingly, this is concentrated in short-term trade finance. And yeah, this makes sense. China is one of the biggest trade partners in the world. Every country uh, almost in Africa considers China its largest trading partner. And a lot of this has been secured and underwritten by Sinoshaw. But within that trend, you also see the, the rise and fall of a small layer of, of Sinoshaw's activities in the media to long-term export credit insurance. And this, this small but significant layer of MLT is what has underwritten a substantial portion of the overseas debt and lending that has been extended by Chinese policy banks and creditors. And really, there's a, there's a very visible squeeze after 2018. And this coincides with the pullback that we saw in uh, overseas lending from Chinese creditors. Um, our research finds that Sinoshaw coverage is seen as important and, and even essential for some policy, uh, for some commercial banks looking to invest overseas. It plays a slightly differential role with different banks. So with Exim Bank, Sinoshaw has been responsible for extending its portfolio and its ability to, uh, to, to expand its lending envelope within certain countries. And it seems to take on the more high-risk end of Exim Bank's portfolio, whereas for CDB, ICBC, and other commercial lending, it seems to play a little bit more of a credit enhancing role. So those loans are smaller in volume, but they, they have a uh, higher grant element to them. And clearly, Sinoshaw has a, a pivotal role in ensuring projects going go forward. Um, very, uh, for, for some banks, uh, very few are able to, to go ahead and, and approve loans unless there is Sinoshaw backing to them. However, because of its strategic position within the Belt and Road Initiative, we also highlight the, the, this, this trend of moral hazard as well that's come into play in Sinoshaw's uh, underwriting of overseas lending. Another contribution of the paper is that it tries to also situate Sinoshaw in the wider context of DFIs, ECAs and MDBs that provide this kind of guarantee and risk insurance products for, for long-term investments in the infrastructure. And some of the, the charts that, um, that you see on the right kind of indicate, as, again, by scale, Sinoshaw's capacity to underwrite really dwarfs all of the other uh, major institutions. And given its scale and given its integral role within China's financial architecture, uh, this has been perceived as a, as a fundamental challenge to particularly to the OECD arrangement, as well as to uh, OECD aid practices. Sinoshaw and China Exim Bank, the two ECAs, are not part of the OECD arrangement. Uh, they don't follow the OECD DAC rules on untying aid. In fact, their Exim Bank readily blends aid and export credit together in a form of blended finance that uh, really undercuts the, the level playing field that the OECD arrangement was, was developed to uh, to support. And this challenge to the OECD regime has been one driver in uh, this modernization process that we've seen over the last few years. And from 2023, uh, the OECD arrangement uh, 
uh, has, has implemented some new rules in place to reform the terms of its finance that ECAs can now provide, allowing for longer tenors and also with plans to reduce minimum premiums. Competition with China is one component in this, but a bigger driver is also this need to mobilize financing for climate investment and, and green transitions. And this is also an area where we see common convergence between ECAs, DFIs, and also Sinoshore itself, although Sinoshore is still playing a little bit of a catch-up role when it comes to, uh, to, to adapting to supporting climate finance. And the Sinoshore model illustrates the scale of mobilization that can be achieved with state-backed guarantees, but, but also lessons around the need for sufficient risk management, for sufficient capacity uh, in developing good projects. And to date, guarantees and insurance instruments remain underplayed amongst OECD DFIs, MDBs, and ECAs, many of whom offer it as a part of a wider portfolio of products. But I think we're also seeing some change in this regard uh, when it comes to, for example, the EU's use of EFSD plus instruments. So uh, to wrap up my presentation before we, we head to the panel, um, the, the paper and this research on Sinoshore illustrates a lot of these, these trends and, and adds another angle to them. We see the pullback from Sinoshore in China's wider financial architecture as one uh, explanatory factor in why uh, the, the BRI and lending by the BRI has, has seen this, this cliff drop in the last few years. Sinoshore coverage has shrunk and clearly its appetite for risk has also shrunk. Um, and the ability of Sinoshore to extend the kind of guarantees that it used to in the middle of the decade do not seem to, to exist anymore. Instead, we're seeing this shift to what's called small and beautiful or small and smart projects and a new focus on the Green Belt and Road Initiative, which is also becoming an increasing uh, integral part of Sinoshore's mandate as well. And so this raises the question as of also whether Chinese finance in the future can also be mobilized to support greater uh, green investment. And uh, just to conclude um, on some of the future directions of research happening at ODI, uh, Infrastructure finance is going to be one of the key areas that we'll be looking into going forward. And in the context of a slowed down Belt and Road Initiative and the withdrawal, it seems, of China from financing some of these big mega projects, you know, what do new infrastructure uh, initiatives mean for this, this global landscape and, and the continued demand for also climate investment in the global south? And also continued research on how China's domestic economic transition and the continued relevance of China's capital flows and what, do this, what does this mean for industrialization and economic transformation in the global south. Uh, and I will conclude here. Um, I think my colleague Linda is just going to, to attend. Yes. Could you show us the last slide one more time, please? Thank you. Okay, great. Yes. I have a question on the previous side when you said that medium to long term assets represented a portion of the backed uh, investments from the Chinese ECA infrastructure project. And I 
couldn't clearly see the numbers. My, my understanding was around 20 billion. Just to get a, a grasp of actually how much ECA is backing a structural project against other types. So you can see that in the uh, in the total proportion. Unfortunately, the orange and red uh, is not very good for contrast. But this is the proportion of medium to long term insurance cover. So it's very small, right? But in the context of the amount of lending that it's been able to mobilize. Uh, this has played a very, very significant mobilizing role. What does that mean? Does that mean that banks lend without ECA guarantees? It means that banks are generally very unwilling to lend without an ECA guarantee in some cases. And we're talking about Chinese banks here. And so for many of these commercial loans that have been part of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, Sinoshore backing has played a, a very pivotal role. I mean, this, this chart... 20 billion years is not much. So... It shows how powerful it is. Um, sorry, I have an update. So um, Dora, who was uh, supposed to moderate this thing, and when. Okay. So we will have a slight change of plan. And I wonder if you now would mind moderating sure. the discussion, sure, sure. Uh, if this session is uh, complete, and then we can move into the... Yeah. yeah, shall we bring the panelists? Yes, please. And uh, sorry for the inconvenience. Uh, Do you think we can have the panel here? Thank you for bearing with us whilst we make some maneuvers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I won't thank myself for that great presentation, <laughs> but, uh, but thank you for staying with us and, and being patient. Um, and we're Really delighted now to be joined by uh, a distinguished panel of speakers. So, firstly, I'll introduce Her Excellency Ambassador Grace Asirvatham, who is the Sri Lanka Ambassador to Belgium, Luxembourg, and the EU. Uh, and she has previously served for, for 35 years as a diplomat and international civil servant. Secondly, His Excellency uh, Ambassador Bitange Ndemo who is Kenya's ambassador to Belgium and to the EU. Um, before assuming his current diplomatic assignment, Nemo served as a distinguished professor of entrepreneurship at the Faculty of Business and Management Sciences at the University of Nairobi. Thirdly, Lynn Gertels is director at the European Institute for Asian Studies. She is also an associated researcher and lecturer on the EU-China Political and Economic Relations at the ESSCA School of Management uh, and the EU Asia Institute in France. And finally, my colleague Linda Calabresi, who is a research fellow in the International Deve uh, Economic Development Programme at ODI. Linda is a development economist by training and her research interests include industrialization, economic transformation, uh, private sector development, and, and also the role of global China. So, Thank you all for joining us. Um, so firstly, I'm going to turn to Ambassador Asiratham. So Sri Lanka has 
become uh, in popular media very strongly associated with with what we discussed earlier, this this narrative around the debt trap and the Hanban Tota port has been used as a case study for this. Um, And this has been dissected by Sri Lankan and foreign experts. But beyond the headlines, uh, I want to ask you what what has the BRI represented for Sri Lanka and, and what has the government and also the people achieved from it? Um, and from your viewpoint as well, what have been some of the main challenges? Um, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity uh, for me to uh, express Sri Lanka's views at this forum, especially on the first decade of BRI, and also to envision its uh, you know, path forward or future. And uh, this is a monumental project. And uh, before I go into Sri Lanka BRI relations or our involvement in BR, uh, BRI projects, I would like to give you some information about uh, our bilateral relations with China. That is very important. When you look at our involvement in this monumental project, you, you should also see how our relations have been built uh, between the two countries. And Sri Lanka and China share a very rich diplomatic and cultural exchanges that span over two millennia. And also historical records document that we had relations uh, dating back to the ancient Silk Road, which really facilitated trade and cultural connections between the two countries. So our relations were not established in the recent past. And then one of the primary connections between Sri Lanka and China was Buddhism, which is very important. Buddhism um, originating in India, um, you know, it spread to Sri Lanka and then to um, several parts in Asia including China. So from China, those days, you know, from China, these Chinese pilgrims and scholars, they visited Sri Lanka to learn about Buddhist scriptures. And uh, they wanted to uh, study the the island's monastic uh, practices. So that really brought together the peoples of the two countries. And uh, then Sri Lanka was one of the first South Asian countries to recognize China uh, in 1949. And, uh, you know, um, although we were following non-aligned policy at the time, we wanted to have relations with all countries, regardless their um, political ideologies. And uh, then we established diplomatic relations with China in 1957. Interestingly, before we established um, diplomatic relations, uh, we entered into a trade agreement with China in 1952, which is called Rubber Rice Pact. So that was a kind of a, um, a bond and also an indication that we were going in for, for a, uh, a larger economic cooperation. So that's how we could see because when you look at the way the relations were being built between the two countries, having a rela- uh, having an agreement 
trade agreement at that point of time in 1952 was something very special between the two countries. And uh, from ancient Silk Road connections to contemporary economic collaborations, these relations have withstood the test of time. And uh, these relations fostered growth and development. Moreover, both countries actively cooperated uh, in the international forums. Even now, up to now, we have been cooperating with China and China is helping Sri Lanka. So that relationship mm -hmm. is very important for us. And also, we are uh, very responsible international community members. We cooperated um, in the international forums, upholding the principles of multilateralism and also shared global responsibilities. And additionally, on the relations side, I would like to say that now we have increased, increased people-to-people -people contact through tourism, businesses, uh, cultural exchanges, education, and so many people visit Sri Lanka, so many people from China visit uh, Sri Lanka and the Sri Lankans visit China. So this is something we should say that, um, you, uh, you know, we can say that this is the um, high point in any relations, people to people contact, political level, diplomatic level, cultural level, you can have anything through arrangements, agreements. But when people to people contact increases, that means you have, you are achieving or you are increasing your relations to a real time. Uh, level. Having said that, now we have to focus about Sri Lanka's involvement in China's VRI uh, infrastructure projects. Before I go into that, I would like to say that you all know that Sri Lanka's journey towards uh, economic development was hindered by um, terrorism for three dec decades, 30 years, we suffered because of terrorism. And uh, we were able to successfully um, eliminate terrorism, defeat terrorism in 2009. And you can imagine after 30 years of war, we wanted to develop our infrastructure. <clears throat> we wanted to promote economic development, but we didn't have the modern infrastructure. And you all would agree with me, you need to have the infrastructure, road uh, connection, highways connections, and all other infrastructure for economic connectivity with other countries. It's a competitive world. Globalization was at peak. How could you trade with other countries when you don't have internal infrastructure? So that was the situation. And against this backdrop, the Belt and Road Initiative emerged as a compelling option for us, offering a platform for sustainable, substantial investments in vital infrastructure projects. And it's kind of a God given for us. <laughs> Therefore, as I said before, the decision to join Belt and Road Initiative 
stems from our aspiration for economic development, infrastructure, enhancement, and regional connectivity. Additionally, participation in the BRI uh, aligns with our dream or our ambition to become a hub in the Indian Ocean for commerce and connectivity in the region. That was still, that is still our dream. And joining the BRI took us one step ahead. Oh, that was also one of the reasons, because to have connectivity, you have to have connectivity infrastructure. And BRI offered opportunities for critical investments in Sri Lanka's infrastructure, including port, airport, highways, expressways, roadways, and also um, energy security, energy-related products, which are essential for economic growth and trade facilitation. At the same time, <clears throat> we also faced challenges during our infrastructure development with BRI. Sri Lanka, as you all know, Sri Lanka really was exposed at the academic and political level. Uh, at times, we feel this is because of geopolitical reasons. And our Hamantata port has served as a valuable lesson in the need for careful evaluation of projects, comprehensive due diligence, and sustainable debt management before entering into large infrastructure projects, ensuring that they are economically sustainable. This is the lesson that we learned from, from these um, funding assistance that we received under BRI. This one project really raised our awareness because that was the first time that we were going into such large-scale infrastructure projects. It can go wrong, but it was not forced upon Sri Lanka. You know, we asked for this project. This project was not proposed by China. This project was there for a long time. Twice we did feasibility study, internal feasibility studies, study and also external feasibility study uh, sponsored by other countries, Western countries. And uh, so that, and I don't know whether I should go into detract now or whether maybe in one or two minutes I can wind up, then maybe another opportunity if you can give. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, we can wind up and then we will save the right. debt discussion. For so them. as we move forward, we must also strike a balance between our ambition and fiscal responsibility. We learned a lesson. It's for us. You know, it should not be used under any circumstances to support their ge geopolitical um, views or ambitions. And with this, I will stop um, and then maybe I will take questions. And I would like to say something more about debt diplomacy because it started with Sri Lanka. So I would like to come back to you. But for the time being, I'm sure I will we'll, stop. Thank you. We get much. a lot of questions about that, Mrs. <laughs> oh, Ambassador. Yeah. So thank you so much. And uh, and now I'm going to turn now to Ambassador Nemal. Um, so, so Kenya, of course, has also been a another major partner along the Belt and Road Initiative. We've seen the flagship BRI projects in the form of uh, of the uh, standard gauge railway, the Lamu Port, 
uh, it's an important node along what's been called the Maritime Silk Road. But, um, but China is also not the only partner for Kenya. Right? There are other development partners that have played a critical role in the development of the Northern Corridor, for example. So uh, to go broadly, you know, what, what have these 10 years meant for, for Kenya's development strategies? How has the BRI uh, shaped Kenya's interaction as well with the EU and with other development partners? Thank you. And um, I think my, my colleague here has summed up uh, almost similar experiences that we, uh, we've gone through um, and it's like a growth process. Um, Kenya was colonized by Britain and uh, even after independence, worked very closely, almost all our exports went to, to Europe and uh, most of the initial development after independence was largely from the Western world, uh, borrowing from the, the World Bank and other uh, agencies that uh, uh, IMFs and other stuff. Um, but it didn't work. Um, like um, in the 80s, 90s, when we had the structural adjustment programs, um, which completely plunged the economy into um, a complete failure. I mean, it didn't work because um, the prescription for Africa was that uh, focus more on import substitution and Asia focused more on exports, export oriented. Um, of course, the, our partners uh, removed the infrastructure from part of the financing, completely plunging um, intra, even within East Africa, infrastructure development was not there. So when China came and the BRI is informed with the initial investments that China started to make uh, in the region and they found that actually we could do more with this. And I'm sure they, they are now looking at how can we do more uh, because of the, what we are hearing, especially uh, opening up the interior of Africa and uh, exploiting some of the resources, which something which even now, um, after the Western world, uh, I've seen what China has done, the policy has changed towards infrastructure. We are discussing infrastructure with the EU at the moment. Uh, we didn't discuss infrastructure with the US. Um, if some of you watched uh, when uh, the UK Prime Minister was in the US with, uh, with Joe Biden, Joe Biden said, oh, we're gonna come together and build a, a road across uh, from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. This is something that is in the cards with the Chinese that if we opened up this space, a lot of Africa's interior has got a lot of resources, which are very critical resources. What we are discussing actually at the moment about critical resources. Um, so the Western world is now waking up to the fact that uh, China helped open up the space to see some of the things that we were not able to see that some countries in West, in Central Africa 
still have complete coronal infrastructure. But Kenya benefited because of its uh, proximity within the Eastern Africa. We had the ports um, and we were looking towards how to develop um, the interior by connecting even within East Africa to, to put up the, the infrastructure. Um, the former president, um, uh, President Moy, uh, fell, up, fell out with, um, with the Western world. Um, and I think there were allegations of corruption. And when he fell out, the President Kibaki came, who was his deputy, and he says, this fate we are facing East now. Um, if you had asked a, a small question, who has been the best performing president of Kenya? It would be Kibaki, simply because uh, he found uh, the relations with China actually benefited Kenya, that Kenya moved from a low-income country to a lower-middle-income country within a very short period, period of time. Uh, the absence of conditions from Chinese loans, um, and something I say that the West even now are making mistakes uh, by uh, creating too many conditions. I mean, um, uh, I know, for example, uh, the problems that we had at the time was that it was a prescription that you take. Uh, right now is, oh, we can work with you, uh, but we have to look at these issues of uh, LGBTQ. Um, there is not a single politician in Africa who go and tell his people that, okay, we are doing this. Of course, Kenya's constitution allows anybody can do what they want to do. But these are conditionalities which are nothing to do with um, development in itself, um, which are completely outside. Uh, I'm, I'm saying this because it, it, it's probably going to affect and give, if we're talking geopolitically, and give China uh, a space to actually dominate where they could easily have, uh, have very easy discussions with, with Africa. I want to finish because you are looking at me differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but what are the benefits? <laughs> What are the benefits we have seen? Uh, China actually opened up uh, uh, into regional trading. Uh, we will say it helped us to begin integration. And as we begin to talk about Africa continental free trade area, it's because you can link into many, many countries that we never used to link before. Even Ethiopia, which is a neighbor, South Sudan, we never used to have any question. It has opened up trade uh, between the countries. Uh, we import a lot from Tanzania because that work was done. Uh, we expanded our airport. Most other countries can bring their exports through Kenya because of the expansion of, of the Chinese funding. Um, Chinese funding did a lot of work, especially in the ICT sector, that uh, the, the region has become uh, known becomes synonymous with IT and other stuff. Then um, I think because of that, of course, the economy was economic growth uh, arising from 
the investments in that space. So I stop here so that I don't make mistakes. <laughs> now I'm sorry if my face uh, seemed a little critical. I was, I was, I mean, the, the next question that I wanted to ask, and maybe this we can say for the next round is sort of now that we're in an era where the, the BRI has slowed down, official financing has slowed down, and we're not seeing the same willingness and scale from Chinese finance that we did before. You know, how how can how can we continue to develop on this sort of progress and this trajectory uh, in your respective countries? But before we get to that, I'm going to turn to, to Lynn, who brings a, a, a viewpoint from, from Brussels or, or perhaps more of a European perspective, if I may say so. I mean, how do you see the impact of the BRI on the on the global development landscape then uh, here in Europe and beyond? And what do you see as the, the challenges and how the initiative has been implemented around the world? And also, since we are in Europe, uh, what are the lessons for, for how European partners can engage with global South countries? Yes. Well, of course, I mean, the title of the event is already looking back and looking forward. So I, I think actually that's a really, I mean, that's a key phrase. And I think that's what we really need to do. Um, and looking back at the 10 years of the Belt and Road Initiative, I think you've already highlighted it. There's a lot of changes that have already happened. I mean, at the time uh, when the Belt and Road Initiative was launched, which was still at that time, One Belt, One Road, as it is in Chinese, Itailu. Um, basically, at that point, nobody really knew yet what it was going to be. It was launched as a big project, as a big initiative, but it was more a concept that still had to be filled in. Uh, I mean, I had people, um, Chinese officials, um, local officials actually asking me, like, um, what should we do? So, I mean, I think over the past 10 years, that concept has grown. And I think it has also grown upon China to a certain extent, um, as well as on the beneficiaries. Um, I think, of course, I mean, China has therefore also gained some leverage in the beneficiary countries. Um I think, well, of course, it is still mainly infrastructure-based, um, which is not always the case for other initiatives um, from European perspective. Um, but I think also compared to like traditional development for operational aid loans that have been provided by more Western um, uh, donors to a certain extent, I think China has taken a very different approach. And I think that has been the major issue or the major thing that has challenged um, uh, other existing initiatives. I mean, China is, has a more of a business take on it, a bit more market-driven and, and like contract-based, um, which was less the case for others. Um, I mean, initially, I think the projects were mainly high-risk and high-return approach. As you've mentioned, I mean, that has changed a bit and it's more like small is beautiful at the moment and it's more like really quality-based uh, and they have also shifted that uh, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, the high-risk, high-return approach has maybe failed in some cases, but I think it has also like been highly beneficial in others. Um, so to that extent, I mean, China should also be given some credit, at least, um, despite the challenges um, that have uh, been in place. Um, I mean, I think, well, the quality of the finalized project was not always up to par with the expectations. Um, but I think, I mean, that and other criticism have been addressed over time to a certain extent. But I think that has also changed a bit um, over the past 10 years. Um, I mean, I think China's approach is mainly very different. Um, it's more like um, a partnership, a contract, 
Um, I mean, it's less conditional, as you've mentioned. Um, it's more like, well, what can we do for you? And this is the contract on the basis of which we're going to do this. Um, of course, it's up to the countries themselves to accept it or not, as you have mentioned. Um, I think one of the main things that has uh, China has been doing by the BRI to a certain extent is, of course, the Global South has been voicing quite a, a bit of concerns and uh, frustrations with the existing multilateral governance system, um, the way um, development cooperation has been taking place. Um, and so to a certain extent, you also see that with like the BRICS expansion and the interest for BRICS um, and other initiatives. And like, so they're trying to find some solutions to a certain extent. And I think that is a big challenge um, for Europe, for instance, as well as um, other Western donors. So, I mean, China has kind of provided a bit of an alternative. Um, and I mean, and now there is choice. So the question is more like, how are we going to respond to that? And how are we actually going to come, um, I mean, to come across um, that bridge that, um, I mean, the global south, the countries in the global south are actually asking for um, more of, of like a, a partnership. Um, they want more agency basically in their development. And I think that is a challenge in like the existing system right now and how to um, address that. Um, I think, well, to be honest, I actually believe that the Belt and Road Initiative itself is probably more a response to the existing changes um, than uh, in international development and then the global, I mean, multilateral systems rather than the other way around. Um, so, I mean, to answer your question, I think it's actually more uh, that the BRI itself is already like Could a response. Right, another one. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, basically, I, there are some, I mean, these were the um, the dynamics that were already in place. And I think China found some alternative and, and used the BRI actually to respond to that um, rather than um, the BRI, uh, like other aspects being a response to the BRI. I think that came later. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that was a dynamic that was already um, in place. So um, I think it's probably China's answer um, and response rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think like there's there's also like a question more from um, countries in the global south that they want to have that agency and that I mean responsibility to a certain extent um, for their own development and not only being um, expert countries for raw uh, raw materials um, for critical materials especially but also to have, be able to provide that added value to products and and to really like economically develop. Um, I mean, for that you need infrastructure. Um, so the question is, how can we actually match that and what can we do with that? Um, I think, well, for people, of course, the most important part is that the roads and are being built. Who does that is probably less of, of an issue for the people in the street. So, um, <laughs> I mean, the road is there. It's more important to actually make sure that um, the, the quality of these projects and the infrastructure um, is in place. Um, and China has been offering that alternative. Um, so what, how can we actually match that? Um, I think, well, if you look at, uh, I mean, the challenges also to a certain extent that um, the Belt and Road has come across with, or China um, in particular, I think we've already mentioned like the economic slowdown. 
um, in China, and that also will have an impact uh, on, I mean, its lending, on its spending, um, and its approach to a certain extent. We already see like a different in, in the different kind of projects that are there. Um, but I mean, I think um, that also like um, the, uh, the pandemic has accelerated that. Um, I think one other issue with the BRI in particular is that um, the concept itself and its vagueness about what is included and what not is sometimes a bit of a point of a discussion. Um, I remember also discussions, for instance, with Nepal in like um, the airport, is it now part of the Belt and Road Initiative or not? China sometimes claims it is, Nepal did not. Um, so, I mean, it's more like what is the BRI and what is included and not? So some clarity um, on the Chinese side uh, might also be uh, necessary there. Um, I think if you look at some of the countries, the disillusionment um, with promises that had been made um, on the BRI and uh, projects um, that had not been met um, after a while. I, I look at particularly to a certain extent to um, the Central and Eastern European countries to a certain extent um, with the uh, 17 plus one uh, initiative, which has now um, been scaled down uh, to a certain extent. Um, so the problem is also like, I mean, with a lot of promises, you might not always be able to meet those. So I think a wise choice in the projects is probably um, in place um, to actually bridge that expectation gap to a certain extent. Um, of course, like the quality is going to prevail um, and that needs to be up to standard, um, whether it, it doesn't matter who provides um, the infrastructure. Um, I think also like, um, in, especially initially, um, there, was, there were some issues with the Chinese approach to these projects, um, bringing um, workers equipment from China only and bringing less um, of real development and jobs um, for the countries themselves. I think that has to a certain extent also be a, um, been a bit addressed uh, in the meantime, but there might be some other things that could actually be, um, be done to improve that still. And then of course for the debt trap policy, but I believe that we'll be going into that um, a bit further afterwards. Um, but I think the main thing is, um, how are we going to react to that? Um, and therefore, of course, I mean, the question is more like, what are the needs from the countries in the global south? Um, I think coordination with China will be needed rather than actually to look at them, I mean, or the BRI in particular as like a competing um, initiative. It's more like, what can we do together and how can we match things or what can be synergies? I think that is probably a better approach and like coordination um, rather than competition. Um, I think, well, the EU, of course, has a global gateway. We have the Global Gateway Forum coming up as well, um, which is going to take place, I think, after um, the, uh, the BRI Forum. <laughs> no, but, um, no, but it's more like, okay, it's also a thinking process and an approaching, like, what do we need to do and how can we um, actually, I mean, move forward? Um, I mean, but I think, well, that's the main issues. And uh, I think the demand is coming from the global south. More, how are we going to respond to it? Great. Thank you so much, Lynn. Um, and finally, turning to Linda, uh, you've done a lot of research on the impacts of, of Chinese capital on the ground. So after 10 years, can you tell us a little bit about what the evidence says on, uh, for, in terms of infrastructure investment and energy transport that, that's really typified the Belt and Road Initiative? What is the impact of this kind of investment for economic development in these countries? both positive and negative. Thank you, Yunnan. Um, yeah, I'm going to bring my perspective as a researcher, even though I'm you know, very humble to be sitting on this panel where I've heard a lot of interesting things. I was 
like frantically writing basically. Um, so I think, you know, there's there's a lot that I can still learn on the topic. But in general, I think like trying to assess the impact of such a complex thing is, is very difficult. So when the Belt and Road was announced uh, within, you know, the next couple of years, uh, a lot of studies were published that said, you know, Belt and Road, um, this can increase like GDP of this country of 2%, it's gonna increase trade by 7% and whatnot. Like there were there were a lot of these kind of studies circulated in the World Bank has done a lot of that work. And I think those were all relying on assumptions, specific assumptions that the project is gonna be completed, that's gonna be completed on time, that projections are actually correct. And what we have seen is that in the course of the past 10 years is that actually the projects and the, the projects that form part of the Belt and Road have evolved a lot. So some have been canceled, some corridors have been reshaped, um, some price tags have been reduced. There's this famous example of uh, the port of Tokyo in Myanmar that was supposed to be a sort of $7 billion uh, project. And then the government of Myanmar, the, the previous government of Myanmar, the National League for Democracy government, wasn't particularly happy about it. And so they went and renegotiated the price tag and sized down the, the port and so on. So, a lot has changed compared to those early studies. So it may seem like a platitude, but to actually understand the impact of the Belton Road, you have to look at the country cases and other project cases and to look how each of them has played out on the ground. Um, in general, we can say definitely, and we can see also a lot of infrastructure has been built. I was reading some figures for Africa, uh, 6,000 kilometers of railways, 10,000 kilometers of roads have been built. I mean, this is a massive increase in the infrastructure offer. Energy infrastructure has been built as well. So countries that were previously importing energy are now producing and actually exporting. And with that, energy costs have gone down, transport costs have gone down, transport times have gone down as well. We know that the Belt and Road has led to job creation. A lot of these projects have not only meant that people were employed in the projects locally, but also that a lot of industries were stimulated, um, cement, uh, construction materials, and so on. A lot of, we see a lot of like these industries really like growing in, in many countries where infrastructure is uh, now being pushed. And we've seen also some extents of technology transfer where countries have learned how to build and how to operate some of these infrastructure projects. And of course we can debate, you know, to, to what extent did I go? Was this as was this technology transfer or knowledge transfer as um, deep and profound as it could have been, or a bit less? I mean, that depends on the cases, but certainly we see some sort of positive impact. And at the same time, we also see some negative impacts, and those are the ones that always take the headlines and that we hear a lot about, right? So. Um, projects being built in reserves or protected wetlands or national parks. Um, we know that there have been protests against coal-fired power plants where local communities didn't want uh, that type of project in their area. Um, similarly, for social uh, outcomes, we know that particularly local communities have not been happy about the benefits of the projects to them, meaning, um, they don't perceive the benefits to be as big as they could have been. So very often, for example, Chinese company will go in a country and um, hire local workers. And so for them, local workers just mean workers from the country. But sometimes for the people in the community, they actually want people to be employed in the local community. 
not people from the capital going to work in a project in a specific area, right? So also the understanding of what is the social benefit of the Belt and Road changes depending on uh, you know, how you look at it and who's looking at it. And then of course, one of the main challenges that we know is the debt sustainability challenge um, that you know, maybe will be discussed a bit later, but the main point there is uh, projections were made um, at a certain period of time, and maybe these projections were too optimistic, or maybe they were done at a point where countries were feeling themselves with themselves feeling optimistic. A lot of countries had maybe um, natural resources revenue. We're talking about the early 2010s or late 2000s, um, when there was this uh, commodity boom, where there were a lot of natural resources, where prices were high. So countries felt very confident that, you know, we can borrow now and then we can repay. And maybe things didn't go that way or not in all cases they went in that way. So there have been some challenges um, in that sense. But from my viewpoint, I think, rather than breaking this down, it's important to also consider this more in general, like holistically, what has the Belt and Road led to? So infrastructure has been built, but has that contributed to growth? Has that contributed to a change in the way an economy works, a change in the way, you know, like a, a job, uh, a change in the way an economy, for example, produces and so on and so forth. So, you know, you now have more energy or you now have more uh, transport routes. Do you use those to export more? Do you use those to produce more? Is that what has happened? Um, there have been studies, for example, I was recently reading a study on the China-Pakistan economic corridor. That's one of the flagship uh, projects or one of the flagship corridors of the Belt and Road. And the study said basically um, there, there's been a lot of stuff that's been built here in Pakistan, but it's not been transformational because Pakistan is such a big country. And even all of this money going towards infrastructure has helped a little bit, but you don't see that that has translated into economic growth. You have the infrastructure, but you need to use it somehow. And to me, that's a key point, right? So a lot of the narrative on the Belt and Road relies on this model, on this idea um, that you build infrastructure and then growth comes. Um, and it kind of relies on, you know, there's this Chinese saying, you build a road first, you build a road to get rich, basically. You first build roads and, and then get rich. Um, and this is a false narrative of the Chinese story. So, of course, infrastructure was super important in the Chinese case, but China became a country that you know radically transformed its economy in the past 40, 50 years through not only infrastructure, but also agricultural modernization, industrial development, strong emphasis on knowledge transfers, strong emphasis on human capital to absorb all the knowledge from the foreign investment that was invited into the country. So my takeaway kind of, you know, on the Belt and Road discussion is it's great to have the infrastructure. You need the infrastructure, you absolutely need it. I mean, I think it was made clear but that's only one part of the story. So you need also, to, the infrastructure is, a, is, is not an end, it's a tool. So you need to use that to actually then invite the investment, promote not only foreign, but also domestic investment and promote, you know, that sort of like um, uh, transformation of the economic structure that allows the country to then generate sustainable growth rather than just building the infrastructure and leaving it there. Yeah, I guess that's my sort of key message on this. Thank you so much, Linda. Um, and in the interest of timekeeping, for which I will take the blame, uh, but I want to ask you all the same question and I want to get a two to three minute response as concise as possible. Uh, and then we're going to turn it to the audience questions. So in two to three minutes, I want to ask you, 
Will we still be talking about the Belt and Road Initiative in the next 10 years? And what will be the major challenges that we need to confront in the immediate coming years? We've already discussed the fact that debt is becoming a growing issue. Interest rates are very high right now, and maybe we can't sustain the same kind of infrastructure finance that we could in the earlier decade. But what does this mean for the Belt and Road Initiative looking forward? Ambassador, so welcome to you. Yeah, that's a very pertinent question. From our point of view, uh, we think that uh, BRI is likely to remain a central topic, um, maybe another one or two decades. And uh, we also uh, would like to see that uh, to have that prominence, the BRI uh, concept itself should evolve according to the priorities of the countries. And also we will have to see it should be contributing to the current and future um, goals, uh, I, I would say common goals, which are promoted by international organizations. Now we are talking, uh, always talking about climate change, how uh, the BRI is going to accommodate climate change related issues, SDGs related issues. It should not be always about the connectivity. And uh, one fine day you will realize there are no countries wanting to have infrastructure development in their countries. There, you know, it will be, uh, it's not an open-ended, you know, project. One day it is going to close. So you have to look for other areas where you can shine. And also um, another point I would like to raise since you have given me two minutes. <laughs> there are other uh, similar projects and initiatives coming into the, uh, to the uh, field. And one is about the European program, Global Gateway. And likewise, countries, other countries are also trying to give similar um, initiatives or projects to countries in the neighborhood. And everything is based on what is happening in the in the uh, in the area of geopolitics, globalization and all that. And so uh, you know we need to see whether BRI will withstand that and whether they can change their programs. You know, they cannot continue their program at the way that they have been performing and the focus and uh, scope should change. Uh, I'll come this way. So, Linda, I'll see you. Sure. So I think that's a very interesting question because if you had asked 10 years ago, in 10 years, we'll be still talking about the Belt and Road. I think a lot of us would have said, no, like this is just a name, this is just a fad, and we don't really even understand what this is, right? Like we don't understand what, what is this, why does it, you know, change names. We don't have a list of projects. We don't know what is Belt and Road, what isn't. Um, so going by that and thinking that, you know, those sort of um, uh, questions have been disproven, I think in 10 years, we'll still be looking at something that has this sort of like belt and road kind of label or, or framework. Um, but what will happen is that it will look quite different from what it is today. I mean, the concept itself has evolved quite a lot. So you've shown the kind of evolution of the names, the nature of the financing and so on. And I think there's been a lot of learning from the Chinese side, um, learning from you know stories around the, the criticism around the way they land, or criticism around the, um, the, the, the impact of some of the projects. And this small and beautiful trend, for example, is now a response to that criticism. So as things evolve and, and go along, I think, a lot of a lot more issues will will arise uh, in the way infrastructure is being built and financed, 
And the Chinese uh, constructors and lenders, but also others, will learn from those issues and will try to improve. So we will look at something in 10 years, but it will be slightly different and hopefully not better for the countries that uh, receive and post the projects. Thank you so much, Linda. See you, Ambassador. Thank you. I would agree with them. If you look at the history of uh, development, um, when the British and the French uh, were fighting over textile industry, uh, learning from one another, um, I'm trying to bring in uh, theoretical assumptions that uh, uh, when you are a monopoly and others see, they would get into the space and minimize your, your earnings. So what you're seeing happening in Africa now, Ethiopia is looking into a structured relationship with China, where there is technology transfer, where they, they, they lessen the number of Chinese who are working. The same thing South Africa is looking at the same thing. Um, anything uh, at that magnitude, is like marriage, you know, there is a period of adjustment, you begin to understand that uh, you can negotiate some things. Um, we, this is what is happening in Africa now. We can negotiate with the Chinese on this. The good thing uh, that can sustain China longer is that they are not interested in advancing the ideology. They can work with you as capitalists and they don't care what you do. They can do what they are doing ideologically at home and abroad, they are doing a different thing. Um, Europe is coming with a global gateway. Uh, for them to be competitive in this space, they, they would have to, to do a few adjustments and that would happen. India is coming up because of their property technologies and some Asian countries, um, what US did to Korea and other things. Um, so th this is development has never been that you can wake up from somewhere and, and they develop. Um, if it wasn't for Nixon, China would not be where it is at the moment. They said, we'll give you technology, forget about these Russians. And then they, they flourished from, from just that meeting that Nixon went to China. Um, and this is going to happen. There will be competitors. Um, they, will, they will probably have a better world where there is a competition. Just to come back to yes. you on a very minor point, yes. uh, you mentioned the EU Global Gateway, and of course, I think there are many of us in the room and beyond who are yeah. quite interested in this as well. You mentioned adjustments. I mean, could you sum up in brief what do you think is the as the key? If you were to give advice to EU policymakers, what, to, well, what are these? Not, not, not as an ambassador now. You brought me as an academic. <laughs> um, <laughs> people may say I'm doing things which I'm not supposed to do. Uh, <laughs> I said earlier that uh, um, Europe should not be the moral policeman of the world. Um, and the moment they realize that. Um, once people develop, they also aspire to be like, you know, it would happen at some point. But to put it ahead, it gives room for others to come in and say, forget that nonsense. We are here, we can help you with this. So this is, this is I, don't, I hope you have understood what I'm saying. 
I, I'm sure the message will travel home. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, and finally, then, uh, will we be talking about the BRI in 10 years' time? I think I agree that we will still be talking about it in 10 years' time, but uh, as we have seen over the past 10 years, indeed, maybe in a different format or a different kind of projects or a different kind of approaches, um, that probably, I mean, I think is a good thing that these projects evolve um, also the approach um, and that they actually respond to existing needs, um, to existing criticisms and challenges to a certain extent. Um, so to that extent, I mean, I think what we need to look at in particular is, uh, I mean, the infrastructure, of course, there's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built, but once the infrastructure is built and is there, what do we do with it? And I think that's the next step. Um, I mean, and actually in, in integrating that also in a, in a bit of a bigger framework um, and moving beyond um, just I mean, having the infrastructure being built. Um, so I think to that extent, there's also like a role for the EU um, in terms of, I mean, maybe not as policemen, of course, um, but more in like, I mean, supporting, um, uh, well, maybe technology transfer to a certain extent, but also in terms of capacity building and um, uh, helping support and developing um, I mean, these roads and what to do with them. You see what uh, the US has done? Uh, very high tech to India to shut up China. You know, because the competition is the best thing for us, for us who are developing. That's a great final statement to end this round of questions on. Um, so I know you've all been sitting patiently, so I'm going to throw it open to the room uh, and also to online Viewers, somehow we will also get your questions, but uh, to the people in the room first, does anyone have a question for the panel? Uh, please, could you stand up and speak into the microphone? And if you could just give your name and affiliation. Hello, um, my name is Fred uh, Bissell, and I work as a consultant for the company, and I've realized that I've changed that music across so working on industrialization. And uh, regarding the question of cooperation, because that's that's what I've noticed on the ground, is that essentially things co companies cooperate. For example, in Japan, there's one rail line with mines all along the rail line, which are Chinese owned, Singapore owned, Indian owned. That line is owned by Kumbo, French and US government, and they're renting the line towards. Uh, Companies working, and at the same time, they're opening up a second airport so that the uh, Chinese can export minerals, minerals that they have mined in one. So, and the second example is uh, Jekamine, what happened to Jekamine that you have seen, where in um, 2008, the World Bank in Belgium and USA committed its uh, privatization. At the same time, capitals from Australia, from Zambia, from um, Belgium came in, bought, bought it, and then sold it back to the Chinese. And then the Chinese operated those units. And so Jekamine broke down into 15 mining parts around. And uh, actually, now in 2023, out of those 15, 13 are Chinese owned. Um, so essentially, I think, in my opinion, BRI is a pragmatic approach for economic development, which actually like you said, follows capital, capital flows from, from China. 
essentially, at least a few countries have been to I noticed that they were pragmatic answers to export raw materials they extracted from mining wood and actually to um, import the goods that they sold in the countries. So a BRI exists as long as China is a economic superpower and will import minerals and whichever commodities from the world export these goods to the rest of the world. I think it will rely on infrastructure to advance its um, commercial policy. Did you have a question for the panel? And so my question is how, how do you see that cooperation between uh, capital flows from uh, you or whichever other country that you can announce for? And the capital flows from, from China. Do you see cooperation on the ground? Do you see companies talking to each other? That's going to be designed by companies who work together, in, uh, for example, a rail line uh, to export commodities, uh, mineral import, electrification lines to, uh, for industrial zones, setups, and this kind of thing. So, do you see, do you see cooperation? Uh, are there any other questions? Uh, gentlemen in the back. Ambassador Antonia. Thank you very much for the invitation. The ambassador of the message. I'd like to congratulate on the sentence for the good way they've read their presentation. Allow me just to put it. Not clear, maybe, maybe I, I did understand the way the second uh, presenter made it on the need for infrastructure and the use of those infrastructures. Uh, portray the message like sometimes there are infrastructures which are not used in combat. But uh, for the case of uh, Africa and most of the countries that I understand, we really need infrastructures to advance our economies. Most of these infrastructures are well designed. Some, most of the time, the designing is done by the local. They are done with the real needs of the community. So I've never seen uh, in my experience in my country the infrastructure that has been put there without any use, being a road, being whatever kind of use. So maybe you have cited in some countries, but I cannot say for those ones, but I want to assure you that the infrastructure that constructed me, whether by the airline, are well designed, and they are really addressing the needs of our people in that area. Now, my Question is to the lady, second lady, after, yeah. How do you see uh, the PRI and the global gateway converging together? How do you see it, the uh, perspective of Europe or whether global? Because uh, it is an EU initiative with more than 300, around 300 billion euros globally and around 150 billion euros for Africa. And uh, 
how do you see it converging together or competing? Thank you. Great. Uh, unless there are any other questions, I'm going to turn the mics back to the panel. And um, I guess maybe we'll start from Ambassador Asivatam again and come around this way. Uh, yes, the first question about cooperation. And uh, what we do is that we give uh, such large projects to individual countries, but still they can collaborate. And one example is that we have uh, Colombo Port Project. It was built on a reclaimed uh, land of 269 hectares. And uh, once reclamation is finished, now we want all other countries to come and invest in infrastructure development within the port city. This is going to be a kind of an international finance city. So that is one example of collaboration. Chinese will also be there. The BRI, it's a BRI project. Chinese will also, it's 100% investment. And they will be there while they are uh, doing their part of uh, development. Other countries can also invest in that project. So that is one uh, um, first question, answer for the first question. The second question raised by Ambassador, uh, it was about infrastructure built and not used. Um, I don't want to cite examples, but there may be white elephants. You know, you think something, you have feasibility studies, but at the end of the day, you cannot operationalize such facilities. It takes time. So for some time, it will not be used. So um, I don't want to go into details, but you know we have, um, uh, we have seen such situations. And then BRI and Global Gateway, how we could merge or converge. Um, I would say that um, Global Gateway is a very recent concept. It was finalized in 2021. Now they have some pilot projects. And uh, BRI has completed 10 years. It's very rich in experience uh, and also faced a lot of criticisms and challenges. And BRI is trying to go ahead with their second phase. And Global Gateway you know, can, can learn from their mistakes. And, uh, you know, debt sustainability is one thing that we want to uh, emphasize. And also we should see that the host country, it's, it, it is not only the host country's responsibility. The lender should also see whether the host country can return the law, whether it is sustainable. And that is one aspect, I think, uh, Global Gateway will look into and environmental uh, aspects, sustainability, and it should not be these projects should not be affecting the environment, which is very important. So these two aspects, I think, uh, Global Gateway has already accommodated in the concept. And but you know, the geographical scope, objectives, everything is different. You know, they are they look similar but they are distinctively different. So, um, you know, what I see is global gateway will be a competition. Uh, we'll create a competition in, in the uh, field of 
providing assistance to the needy countries, vulnerable economies, those countries which require uh, not only infrastructure development assistance, even to, as I said before, reaching SDGs. And uh, here I think um, if the global gateway give, gives you good conditions, then people will turn to global gateway. And also the on the downside, you know, after 10 years or 15 years, people will look at the infrastructure projects completed by BRI and they will see whether they are performing, whether they are helping the country to, uh, you know, develop their economies. If they are not, and if that traps them into a bad debt situation, then they will have to see whether they will have different options to look for. So this is what my reading about these two initiatives. Thank you, Ambassador. Mm -hmm. Linda. Thank you. So thank you very much for the question. I think it's a very interesting one and one that pushes us to reflect a lot, you know, with, um, how can, you know, infrastructure planning be improved? So I'm going to give you one example that comes from um, a country, your neighboring country of Uganda, which is a country where I do a lot of my research. So one of the um, sort of most visible projects in, in Uganda, at least for those coming outside, um, is the road that connects uh, the Entebbe airport with the capital city, Kampala. Of course, there's a similar road in Kenya, an expressway in Kenya. I don't know the story that well, so I'll speak about the Uganda case. So that road is great for people who fly into Uganda, want to reach Kampala. It used to take like, three hours with all the traffic to, to reach the, the city. Now with the expressway, it takes, you know, around uh, one hour. Um, so it's fantastic, you know, for the city elites who want to travel in or out. Um, the project costed around 400 million USD. So quite expensive. Um, so now the question for me is, how are you going to get that money back? That road is not very much used. So when you travel on that road, there's actually like not so much traffic. So the question is, how are you going to get the money back? So you have two ways. One way is you charge uh, fees for people who use the road and use that to repay, but that's going to take a very long time. And then if you charge too much, people are not going to use the road. And so it's not a great way of doing that. And the other way is the road serves some companies and the companies hire people and then the companies pay taxes and then the people who are hired by the companies also pay taxes and then they buy things and so overall like there is a growth in the economy so for me as an economist the way i see this project being beneficial is spending those 400 million not on a road that connects the airport to the capital city but on a road that connects for example kampala to the special to the industrial zone in bale um, which is a new, actually Chinese-built industrial zone where there's around 5,000 people working. Uh, so connecting that industrial zone to the market is actually, to me, a better way of spending the money. So my sort of point is, I, I'm someone who studies um, industrialization and, and economic growth. So my point is always like, use these projects not to make you know life easier for a few people or more comfortable for some tourists, but to actually like, promote investment, generate further growth, you can then use those returns to repay the project rather than, you know, thinking sort of using fees or, or other ways. 
Uh, I know we're at time, but given that I assume everyone's going to stay for a drink or two afterwards, I'm going to take the liberty to, to let the next two panelists conclude their questions, hopefully brief, and then any further questions can be asked over a drink. They answered the question so beautifully. I wanted to answer his question, but then I forgot. What what was the question? The question of cooperation between uh, capital of, uh, the link between capital flows and infrastructure investments, capital flows in industry or services, and uh, how can uh, European companies or American companies or Chinese yeah. companies, Indian companies, cooperate together, for example, within uh, especially economics. Actually, if you go to Lubumbashi, the, the Elon Musk is doing uh, batteries there and Chinese. Uh, them being together, they end up building uh, capacity because you fire here, they go here, or, or the infrastructure itself for mining and other stuff. I, I think it's going. Private companies don't have a problem where you come from. It is the policymakers who have a problem. And, and that, that is the area we need to talk about. My brother has asked a very good question on, on, on this, uh, which we're trying to, to respond here. Um, but let me, let me say that, um, that we, we have a real chance uh, to, to, to have a collaboration between uh, the two. Uh, but there are some things which keeps on putting us aside. Um, like, uh, it, it, let, me, let me say, it. I risk my job and say it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that people get tired of promises, you know. 15 years ago, we told people, oh, you have to have a democratic government, everybody, whatever. The, the Sahel got tired. I mean, they started now saying anybody can work the same way. Same thing. You can only give promises for so long. Uh, all, I, all I'm trying to say that we can work on the global gateway to actually be competitive where um, execution is faster and, uh, and the partnerships. Um, because at the ideological level, you can differ, but uh, on the ground, you can. Americans do it very well, but they use very beautiful words around um, how they cooperate and the stuff. Uh, I think Europeans learn from the Americans. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. I'll finally, then I'll keep it short. Um, but I think it's mainly, um, I mean, coming coming back to what you said, I think it's mainly about connecting the dots. Um, looking at the Global Gateway and the BRI, um, I think especially the Global Gateway, I mean, it's already a continuation of the um, was it connectivity strategy for Asia, which it was before, which has now been expanded. Um, a lot of different things have been brought together. Um, and was it 300 million that has been uh, I mean, allocated to it, um, is there. The, some projects have already been um, identified. I think a lot more are on the way, 
um, and feasibility studies are also on the way. So I think it will be expanded. Um, and the question is more like how to merge them and how to see like what the synergies and what coordination could be happening between them in the execution, but I think also in the planning and monitoring uh, phases to a certain extent. Um, I think in the green transition and the sustainability aspect, there's a lot of work to be done still. Um, and I think, um, I mean, and that untapped potential should be looked into um, more concretely, I guess. Um, I think dialogue, coordination, and also in the choice of projects and identifying the partners there is going to be key. Okay, um, so I'm afraid we're at time. So I will apologize to those online for uh, running out of time to take your questions, but uh, to thank you all again in Brussels and joining us virtually for taking the time to sit with us. Uh, and please join me in thanking our panel again uh, for their fantastic interventions. <laughs>